That was the Smiths with a track titled Sweet and Tender Hooligan. This is David Eastall and this is The C86 Show. Welcome once again to another thrilling ride of life. As I'll be bringing you songs you know, some you don't and some you should. Always playing the finest in indie pop. And as always, we'd like a special guest. And this week, it's going to be the turn of Damon Kukowski from Galaxy 500 fame and also Damon and Miami. So I've got that interview that I've whittled down from well over one hour to, I don't know, probably three easy or four 
easy to digest little segments for the sh- uh, throughout the show with the usual award-worthy playlist. So I'm going to cut the chat and play the next track. This is going to be Galaxy 500, taken from the album On Fire. This is titled Strange. And that's the unmistakable sound of Galaxy 500 with the track titled Strange that came from their 1989 album On Fire. Hello, this is David Eastall. This is the C86 show bringing you the finest in indie pop. Every week we like a special guest. This week it is going to be the turn of Damon 
Krakowski, because I um, spoke to him, I was going to say weeks, months, but it was probably last year. So I've got that interview that I'm going to break up into about three or four easy to digest little segments. It might be four because there was well over one hour of quality chat and boy, did we get through a lot of material. Um, And also the following week, I um, spoke to Dean Wareham, who was the lead singer. So that show will also be coming out very soon as well as Billy Kramer. And there seems to be a connection with Billy Kramer, which I'll um, find out about a bit later on. But anyway, we're going to play another track by Galaxy 500, and then we're going to have the first part of the interview. He says, shouting, in a slightly hysterical but excited way. I am a fanboy, you see. Um, Every song is a winner. But anyway, I'm not sure what this one's going to be. Yes, I do. It's Blue Thunder, also taken from the same album. And this is how it goes.
More chart band sounds. That was Galaxy 500 and the song track tune titled Blue Thunder. Hello again. This is David Eastor. Just in case you missed it the first time, the C86 show. If you want to contact me, we love your messages. We so do. You can via Facebook or Twitter. Just go to at C86 show. I'm, I will be there. And also you can find the archives of the show on uh, Podbean. Uh, Spotify and iTunes. Just go for C86 show and uh, just Google away. Search it and it will be there. And also you could just go to c86.org and you'll find all of them. And um, I'm sort of going through and putting the old ones on the uh, website. So it's going to be very exciting, but uh, you'll get the general gist. I've been trying to find every indie band that happened in the 80s. Anyway, This is going to be the first part of my interview that I had with Damon when we were talking about those indie years. Um, I put them down between 83 and 87. That was the years of the Smiths and Galaxy came along in 87. So, um, yes, we were just talking about sort of the narrative of their uh, creative years. And this was Damon's response. Damon, take it away. Well, we were, of course, signed to Rough Trade in the wake of the Smiths breaking up, but I don't think they were looking to us to replace the Smiths. (laughs) We had no such mass appeal. (laughs) How did you three all come together and um, form a band? Because you'd all met at the early 80s, hadn't you? Oh, we went to school together. So uh, in classic fashion, so many bands have the same story. We were school friends. Uh, I mean, school, school, like grammar school. Um, Dean, of course, was born in New Zealand, but his family had moved uh, to New York where Naomi and I were born in, um, I think, let's see, Dean was about, I don't know, 13 or 14 years old. And so we knew each other from then. Uh, we went to high school together. And, um, you know, I remember meeting Dean in my European history class. I think we were both freshmen in high school. So whatever age that is, 14. And um we went to high school, Naomi as well. She was a year younger. Um, and then we all graduated. We went to college together. We went to Harvard University, Harvard College. And uh, again, Naomi was a year behind, but she uh, arrived the following year, by which time she and I were already a couple. And Dean and I had bands together in college um, with, uh, you know, we true punk rock fashion. We just chose our instruments and picked them up. I chose drums, Dean chose guitar, and we had a very wealthy friend who wanted to play bass. So he bought us our drums and guitars so that he could play bass. And then, uh, we, you know, things muddled along in college like that. We were playing covers of The Clash and Sex Pistols. And it was this was in the early 80s. And then um, our wealthy bass player friend uh, quit but he joined a uh, born-again Christian church that told him to forgive his debts. So he gave us our drums and guitars uh, and uh, Dean's amp, I believe, at the time. He kept his own bass. But anyway, so we were without a bass player. And that went on for a number of of years, really. Um, Through college, we played with some other people. And then uh, we graduated Dean moved back to New York where we'd all grown up and um, I stayed here in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where I still live because uh, Naomi was still in school and uh, we were living together by then off campus. And um, Dean and I were still trying to put a band together, you know, 
And then uh, one summer it was, uh, later Naomi and I, we applied to grad school and we decided to stay in Cambridge to continue grad school at Harvard. And um, one summer we were in New York, like every summer we'd, we'd go home essentially to New York, live in our parents' place places and uh, get summer jobs. And one of those summers we uh, started playing with Dean again I did, and we didn't have a bass player, and Naomi said she'd play bass. So we bought her a bass, and she picked up the bass, and that's how the band started. Right. And, and obviously, at that time, you know, the, there, was the big, there was the sort of, obviously, the punk, the post-punk, and then the indie scene. So when, when Galaxy 500 came along and John Peel started playing, you know, John Peel, who was the DJ, who was who's the person, you know, the go-to person, obviously mm-hmm. it had a, quite a different quality than a lot of the the bands that I suppose we, the Royal We, have sort of been listening to, which was quite, I suppose that's what, what sort of drew a lot of people probably to you, because obviously it was quite a unique sound. Well, it's funny. I mean, we were, it was a very small scale scene at the time. You know, we were here in Boston playing uh, shows and I guess we didn't sound like any other band in Boston particularly, but none of the bands sounded like each other. I have to say, I mean, it was a very, um, stylistically incoherent scene but we all had the same records in our record collection i mean we were all going to the same record stores and we were all buying the same records and we were all trading information about which records to listen to so um we actually had a lot of sympathy with bands that we knew at the time who probably sounded nothing at all um like us or like one another to outsiders but we had all bought the same velvet underground record and the same uh, Dream Syndicate album, and we'd all bought the same classic rock records too. You know uh, that we were trading around. Um, so it was, it was a. It was, I think you know when we when we arrived in England the first time, it was a, a real surprise to us the way that um, the music press there, and to some degree the audiences also, asked us about style. It had never been a question in the U.S. Uh, there was just it was a very different scene at the time here. Uh, all the bands played the same clubs, the same small venues, and the audience went out every night to the same venues and listened to whichever band played. It was it was very unlike the UK in our earlier experience then when we saw that there were these uh, sort of camps within the scene. You know, there, mm. were, there were there were the Smiths fans, and then there were the um, you know people had these sort of loyalties to a style a sound even a way of dress um and that seemed to imply all kinds of things and we we really hadn't experienced that i have to say uh, before we went to the uk yeah i think that i think the two scenes in my own personal observation have grown more similar over over the years um i think that the u.s and the uk seem to operate on still on distinct terms in the music world but much much closer to one another than they were then yeah. I mean, I mean, pre-internet, you remember, there, I, I assume you're old enough to remember this or not. I'm not sure. I'm not um, sure. I'm, I'm <laughs> <laughs> when did you come of age? Well, I suppose, well, I'm, I'm 53, basically. So, oh, I mean, yeah, so the same age. Yeah. So, yeah, as you remember, I, I mean, before the internet, there was, there was just so little communication across, across the ocean, really. We got import records that were very expensive. Um, but that we were devoted to, you know, like Joy Division. And then when New Order came, New Order. And 
we were listening, of course, to the punk, the whole post punk catalog. But you know, it was it was a very um, it was a very f- small circle of people that were buying ex- you know import records like that and and listening to them, and um, and you know we didn't really get the weeklies. I mean, when, if 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 a copy of the enemy showed up, it got passed around. Uh, and when we came to the UK, it was, it was this huge, thriving industry of music journalism that was very unfamiliar to us. It was all we had was you know Rolling Stone and Spin and 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 then our fanzines, uh, which were a very very um, small scale passed around um, zines like Forced Exposure here in Boston, which was run by Byron Coley and Jimmy Johnson, or Conflict, which was Gerard Coslaw's. Uh, these were like broadsheets, basically. Mm. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's like a like a mimeo piece of paper. And um, when we got to the UK, and it was like, wow, there were these there were three major weeklies at the time, and uh, they were filled with music and ads, and and uh, it just seemed like such a a totally different and really much bigger audience uh, than we had been exposed to here. Yeah, because it was interesting because it must have been around the same time when I also went to the art center when I saw you and then I'd also mm-hmm. gone to see um, Tad who were the main band and supported right. was Nirvana Nirvana yes I remember that tour was that the, because we toured behind Tad yeah. uh, in Europe on the continent and um, we were like the next band you know that would arrive in each venue you know because you sort of went the same, similar route than other bands and it was became a, a tour joke because every city we arrived in, the hotel had been canceled that they had reserved for us because Tad had been there the night before and the hotel had called the venue and said, we will never have another band stay at our hotel. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, yes, it must have been. I'll have to have a look at the exact date when you came, but it was it was a very similar time. But in, mm-hmm. interestingly, you had John Peel playing this kind of compilation from uh, Sub Pop 100 and there was another one called Sub Pop 200 which had all these bands on that we thought were great you know the grunge scene and then he was playing you know Galaxy 500 and and obviously again you know the indie fan sort of was picking this up as well and going oh yes this is another great sound but very different so it's quite interesting that you might have been all playing and listening to the same records but obviously the output was very different. Oh yeah absolutely we were completely listening to the same records I mean Sub Pop we met Jonathan and Bruce who started Sub Pop very early on as soon as we went to the west coast for the first time which was a big trip you know I mean it still is but it was a it was a stretch for us to get to the west coast um harder really than it was for us to get to England and so it took a while before we got out there but um as soon as we met Jonathan and Bruce we completely hit it off and it was a very very shared sensibility although of course they were putting out what became known as a stylistically different type of band, um, socially, culturally, and really in terms of our musical sensibilities, it was it was all of a piece. Yeah, and, yeah, and they they, I mean, they offered to sign us. Actually, we were already on Rough Trade, um, but um, we, to tell the truth, we didn't know if they were kidding when they said it at the time, uh, because they said. Uh, Oh, we're sick of this rock. We should just, you know, chuck it all and sign you guys. Yeah. And um, but later it turned out to be really true. I mean, for me and Naomi, Jonathan and Bruce did sign uh, us as a duo. And um, you know, I learned how sincere their enjoyment of our music uh, 
was and is really to this day. We're very close to Jonathan still. Yeah. And um, they went on to put out a lot more quiet records. You know, look at look what they're known for now, Fleet Foxes, it's Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. We would have been laughing at them at the time. And that's the first part of my interview with Damon Krokowski from Galaxy 500 and also Damon and Naomi. Um, still lots more of that to come, but I think we'll play another track by Galaxy 500. This is from a John Peel session that I think was 1989. God, I know I'm going wild with my guesses. It could have been 89 or 90, who knows? I think they did too. And this is going to be a final day. And if you're thinking, mm, that sounds vaguely familiar, it is a version of Young Marble Giants. Anyway, this is their take and this is a rather splendid version. More chart band sounds. That is Galaxy 500 and a track titled Final Day that came from their John Peel session. 
and was originally done by the Young Marble Giants. Hello, this is David Eastall. This is the C86 Show, and this is going to be the second part of my interview with Damon when I was talking about musical trends and that post-indie world that happened in the late 80s. And then I had to mention the S word. Shoegazing, yes, shoegazing. And this was Damon's uh, well, response. Well, later Damon, in the States, I don't know if this took off in the UK, the shoegazing. I think you were put in later. that same category. But by then we were broken sure up, really, so... Because, you know, Galaxy 500 stopped playing in 1991. So by the time people were really referring to anything that resembled us as a genre, I I don't know, to me, it felt like we'd already disappeared. So um, when we were active, uh, we didn't really feel like we had a scene that was um, of a piece with our music, per se. It was just of a piece with our our sensibility and, and our record collection, as I said. Because one thing that I've noticed with with actually every band I've done is that they have this you know four or five years where they do you know they get together they they create a sound that they suddenly surprisingly find is quite interesting then they get you know the single gets picked up and then in the old days it was John Peel and then they did the album they tour and then there would be that tricky second album any band that ever toured America came back completely broken and that (laughs) that was the beginning of the end you know. (laughs) I mean, every every band I've spoke to has come, and then we did America, and that's where it all fell apart. So yeah, God, look from the Sex Pistols forward, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was like no, you know, for some reason, you know, well, they yeah. obviously told me it's just like it just it just takes it, it kills you, and then obviously coping with the post America or the second album or both is is enough to make everybody you know quit. So. You had a much longer period getting together, but then your actual recording period was was relatively short, wasn't it? Oh yeah, very short. Well, it's three three albums, and you know we made an album a year. It was very condensed, but that's that's how bands worked, especially back then. You had to put out a new album to go back on tour for one, and the record company expected it. Um, and we, you know, we were young and and filled with ideas. It was like, why wait? Uh, we certainly didn't, and we didn't have the kind of audience that would sustain, you know, these massive long tours. We scraped by uh, on the road. And so, um, you know, we get home and it was time to start um, writing and recording again pretty much right away. Uh, There was no, you know, there was no call for us to go back out on the road to bigger venues this time. That never happened to us. We stayed at the same level really the whole time. and but I, it's funny idea that the English bands coming over here and and uh, suffering through it. I mean, in a way, I guess we were our expectations were shaped by the American scene, and our expectations were very very low. And so, you know, we didn't expect anything. We didn't expect people to come to shows. We didn't expect to sell records. We pretty much expected hostility uh, wherever we went in the U.S. And that's pretty much what we got. And so when we went to the UK and it was different, it was like a gravy train. It was like, my God, people actually enjoy the music here. Who knew, <laughs> you know? And um, that I can see if you if you went the other direction, you'd have a lot of trouble adjusting to what was a very hostile uh, environment, really, to bands um, in in most of the U.S. I mean, you just go from pocket to pocket of friendliness in college towns or you know, the major cities, but really only certain major cities in certain states. I mean, you, you can see now politically how divided the U.S. is. So that's that's not new. Um, that has been always the case. And being in a band, 
was one way, you know, to, it was like an acid test for wherever you went. You, you found out exactly what uh, the temperature was there. And it was usually pretty hostile to us. Wow, yeah, I know. You were, you were held with great sort of kind of uh, reverence and sort of depth, I think, as well. Yeah, so that's quite different. Yeah, it, I mean, you know, that was so wonderful for us because it was really unfamiliar. Mm-hmm. There, I mean, the only, we only, as I recall, we only sold out, I think, two, maybe three shows in our whole career as Galaxy 500. One was in London at Ulu. I think it was the last show we played there, too. And um, one was in San Francisco, you know, and once was in New York. And that was it. We couldn't go anywhere else and count on an audience um, of any sizable uh, amount, it, no matter what venue we chose to play. It was always underfilled. So we, that was the situation from our point of view. So, we, you know, anytime it went well, we were just like, whoa, that's a big bonus. Yeah. Uh, but we, we didn't take it for granted by any means. And did you have a moment where you you sort of went, this is the end, you know, when it when it got to that point where where it was kind of coming close? Did you all sit down and, and say, this is this is going to be it now? Oh, no, not at all. Well, I mean, the band was, you know, teetering along. I, I mean, there were many moments I thought was the end that weren't. But when the band actually ended, no, Dean just quit out of the blue. We were booking a tour to Japan, and uh, he just quit over the phone with no warning at all. But you know, there's a long backstory to that. He had he was negotiating a solo deal with a major label on the side behind our backs, as we later found out. I mean, we found out that week. It wasn't <laughs> we found out pretty fast. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so um, you know, no, it was total the classic rock story it was uh deception and uh and um betrayal really um but that's a long time ago but certainly there had been i thought the band had ended a half a dozen times before that um it's hard to be in a band uh you're and um and i can tell you from experience it's extremely hard to be in a band with dean um and that was that was the situation but again we weren't expecting anything out of it so it wasn't like we thought we were on some kind of trajectory that um was inevitable it was more like who knows what we're doing let's just see where it goes next yeah i mean because because it's always one of those things with most bands you know it's that sort of as a fan you never really want a band to get back together again because that 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 moment's passed but you would like to think that the members of the band still occasionally sort of can pass a you know a pleasantry or have a nice coffee together. <laughs> yeah, no, not at all. Uh, we have we haven't spoken to Dean since the day he quit. <laughs> <laughs> but you know that's kind of glorious in its own way. Yeah, but, I mean, uh, the, I mean, it's it's ridiculously childish. But actually, we we communicate all the time by email, and you know we have business together, and it's totally calm and cool now. But you know what went down then wasn't cool. And I can't be in retrospect in any which way, but, um, but no, it was terribly bad blood, uh, for ages. Um, for good reason, really. Um, you know, he, he, it was betrayal, but you know, this is, we're talking about, um, a band. I mean, you know, you got to keep it in perspective. Yeah. Cause you were sort of just saying about occasionally having to swap emails. I noticed that, you know, Galaxy 500 still gets on Spotify this phenomenal amount of monthly listens. 
He has been a phenomenally small check for those. Yes, <laughs> I, I, I gather that. That, you, that even though you've got, I mean, it's incredible. You've got over two hundred and seventy-six thousand monthly listeners, yeah. forty thousand followers, and and yeah. yes, I, I I believe that you know you might you might be lucky to get a couple of bucks for that. But again, you know, it must be you must feel pleased that nearly, you know, thirty years later, band, you know, the band is still sort of loved as much as it was. Yeah. Oh yeah, no, that's that's an enormously rewarding. I mean, you know, you 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 dream of making records that will last to some degree, and um, most don't. Some disappear that deserve to last, and some last that don't deserve to at all. But you know, I feel very very lucky that people still listen to the music, and um, you know, to some degree, I put that down to Kramer's genius, really, as a producer. I mean, Kramer took us. As, uh, you know, we were a, a live band because what did we know from recording this? You know, we didn't have any way of recording ourselves and experimenting that way, the way kids do now. Um, we were just a band that were playing bars and playing in our rehearsal room and developing a sound, a live sound. But we went into the studio and Kramer taught us to make a record and he made records out of the material that we brought in. And I think he made great records. I mean, I, 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 I think he was a truly great producer. A uh, difficult man, as he knows, but um, a great producer, and he created um, records that are worth listening to. Period. You know, whether it's with us on it or somebody else, I, I think he's just was really um, skillful and had a feel for the moment of the technology then and of the um, ideas and styles that were floating around in music, and he put them together in, in a very special way. Yeah. So I feel very lucky. I mean, I feel lucky that we made good records. We could have made terrible records. I mean, with the same songs. I'm not saying the songs were, were, were bad or, or, or um, genius. I think they were neither. I think they were okay. But I think um, we made good records, and I feel really, really, really lucky that that happened. Yeah, because one band, or one, one member of a band that I interviewed a few months ago was Simon Raymond from the Cocteau Twins. And obviously there's, yeah. there's quite a similar sort of dynamic in the sense that there was a couple in the Cocteau Twins and a couple in Galaxy 500 as well, wasn't there? Yes, uh, but uh, we, we know Simon and, and he's a wonderful guy. The, the Cocteaus we toured with, that was our last tour as Galaxy 500 was opening for the Cocteaus in the U.S., and um, they were fascinating to watch as a band. They were very different than we were, obviously, for so many reasons. But, but what struck me at the time was how engaged they were with the, their own recording technology. Uh, so even to the point where they had it on stage with them, they were using sequencers. I'd never seen a band use that before then uh, live. Of course, now it's uh, run-of-the-mill. I mean, I still don't, but so many bands just use sequencers and uh, or the software equivalents now, of course, um, as part of a live show. But to me, I'd never seen a band play the same tempo every night, for example, which I found killingly boring as a drummer. I couldn't bear the idea of playing everything the same exact same tempo, exact same length every night. But that was their thing, and they had shaped it and come up with a very poetic uh, way of using that material but they were using um, basically the recording studio as an instrument. We were very, very opposite to that. We had no sense of technology outside our, our, um, our own, each of our own instruments. So we were just still pretty much a bar band uh, from start to finish. 
and we never really altered that. Um, so that was a, it was a different approach. And so when we made records, they really did not resemble, uh, what we did in the rehearsal studio. Uh, they became something else, uh, which is, you know, the saving grace for me when I hear them now on rare occasions, really, um, because it's not just us as a bar band. On the other hand, I was very proud of our live show because I I think over time we got, we got kind of good at our, what we were doing. It took a while. Uh, if you go back and see the early performances of our of Galaxy 500 that are preserved on video, on YouTube, etc., um, you know we were we were pretty poor um, at 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 our instruments, and um, but we had a feel for playing with one another, which is what the band was about. And then as time went on, I think uh, you know the feel for for playing with one another stayed until the end, and. Um, but our individual skills on our instruments got better. And so by the end, I think we were actually a good live band. I was quite proud of our live show. Yeah. And we have since released a live album. Uh, but again, that live album was mixed by Kramer, but it was mixed by him live. Um, but there you, there you hear us outside the studio, but still with Kramer's aesthetic sensibility. Yeah. Intriguing, I hear you say that, is the second part of my interview with Damon from Galaxy 500. Still more of that, so much more of that to go. And don't forget, um, if you were paying attention, hopefully you were, I've got an interview with Dean Wareham that I'll be able to um, sort of put together very soon, hopefully. And also I did get an interview with Billy Kramer, that uh, the producer he was also in quite a lot of other bands. But anyway, I've still got to, uh, yes, edit all that. And um, one day it will be with you. But anyway, if you want to sort of find any of the archives, like I said, it's on Spotify, iTunes and Mixcloud and Podbean. Just go to C86 Show. It's all there. Or just go to www.c86show.org and you'll see the archive. But anyway, I think we'll have some more music, then some more quality chat. This is going to be Galaxy 500. I know, just for a change. And this is a track titled Ceremony.
Indeed, that is Galaxy 500 and another song titled Ceremony, and I think that also came from the 1989 album that was titled On Fire. I know, I like all the suspension. But anyway, this is going to be the third part of my interview with Damon, where we were talking about the post-Galaxy 500 period when he formed a band with Naomi. And um, I was just talking about how long that took and um, if it was kind of a... I know this is going to sound a bit new agey, but whether it was a bit of a healing process and this was his reply. Damon, was it a healing process? That's what I want to know. Uh, yeah, necessary and difficult are good adjectives to apply to what happened. What, what happened, at first, I, in our sense at the time, it, it felt like it took a long time. Because what we did was we quit. We just stopped uh, altogether and we sort of made a vow never to do this again. We felt very burned by the experience. And, and um, you know, Dean, he signed with a major that we had been negotiating with as a band. I mean, he signed it. He took the deal that was being offered to us and signed solo, essentially. And um, the there was actually a concerted effort to denigrate Naomi's and my contribution to Galaxy 500 because there was now a very large commercial investment being made in Dean as representing and continuing the fan base that we had as a group. Uh, so it was very hurtful at the time. And um, our response was sort of sulky. And we were just like, you know, we had other things in our lives we always have. And we were just like, well, you know, fuck it, we don't need it. And we just stopped. And we told everybody we're not doing this again. And then um, it was Kramer kept calling us. I mean, literally, it was just back in the days of telephones. And um, the phone would ring in our apartment, and it was Kramer. It was this like was like over periods of months and months, and he would just call and say, "I know you're still writing songs. Um, you should still be making music." And we were saying no. But but he was right. We were writing songs. He knew us, and he he traveled with us, and he knew uh, how the songs for the Gas Revolution had developed, and he knew uh, our contribution. And he just kept hammering away. And then Naomi was the one who said, um, you know, maybe we really should um, do one more record and just say goodbye on our own terms. And um, so that's what we did. We we said yes to Kramer with the very deliberate idea that we would make one more record and it would be a goodbye and a kind of a little bit of a fuck you too, um, to really to Dean at the time and to the whole industry. So, uh, we did. And that was the album more sad hits, which Kramer produced on his own dime in his own studio and then put out on his own label. And, and if you listen to that record, you hear us saying goodbye, um, very deliberately. I mean, I do anyway, on the record. You know, I mean, we wrote uh, Self-Conscious Dig at Rough Trade, a song called Little Red Record Company. Um, there's a cover song at the end that's like a farewell. And um, we put in some Digs of Dean on the record. And, you know, it was like a classic. It was like a, it's a breakup album, essentially. But it was us breaking up with uh, the entire music industry. And it's called More Sad Hits as a as a gag about you know, continuing um, as if we'd ever had a sad hit, but the idea of like Galaxy 500 is a sad hit. And um, and we put the tears, the Man Ray photo with tears on the cover a little bit. Um, all of it was very quite tongue-in-cheek and uh, 
a lot of full of attitude really for for me and Naomi. And anyway, so we made that, and that was goodbye. Um, and and that was it. We thanked Kramer, and and we went home. But I, I will tell you, I mean, it was really um, an amazing experience to go back in the studio and be there without Dean and um, make music on our own terms. And it felt great. So, you know, I had been the reluctant partner in it uh, going down, and Naomi was totally right that we did need to do it on our own terms. And Kramer was totally right that we were still writing songs. So the record came out and actually um, garnered some attention here in the U.S. And the next thing we knew, Sub Pop called Jonathan and Bruce and said, we love the record. Will you make another one? And, you know, we said no. (laughs) I mean, you know, this is just our attitude at the time. We were so disgusted by what was going on um in the 90s there's so many of our friends in music had gone through similar experiences as bands split up and people were assigned to majors and there was money flying around it just seemed also repulsive and um we said no and they kind of they were like well what do you mean no like don't you want to make music and we're like well yeah we do but we want to do it if we do it we're going to do it on our own terms and sub pop being sub pop god bless them they were just like okay, what are those terms? And we named them. And we said, you know, no interference from what we do, total artistic control, no commitment for a second album. We did, we did, we went on to make, what was it, five, six albums with them, each of them on a one album deal. Um, the rights had to revert to us. I mean, you know, who was doing that at the time? It was insane. Warner Brothers had bought 49% of their company. And Jonathan agreed to all of this and ran interference with Warners, who was their silent partner. And uh, we went on to record for them. It was a really amazing thing that happened. We just kind of said, no, we're going to do it this way. So that's how we did it. And so we did continue our career, but in a very, um, I'd say, inept way in terms of the music industry. I mean, we never, we never had any investment in us because we pushed it away. We didn't want any debt. We didn't want... Um, any long-term commitments we didn't and consequently we got no promotion I mm. mean because that's that's of course what you trade for all of that um, and at the time we told them we would never tour also so we said we'll never play live this is when we made our second album our first for Sub Pop we said we'll never play live and they you know Jonathan and Bruce they said okay and we're like alright well now we've set all our terms and they said okay we have to continue right you know <laughs> So we did. So we made um, our second album again with Kramer, The Wondrous World of Damon and Naomi. And that time, all the problems were in the studio for the first time in our in our careers. The problems were with Kramer. Uh, Kramer at the time had decided to stop smoking pot. And Kramer is like, we'd never seen him not high uh, until that point. And he had gone cold turkey and he was so irritable and really, really difficult. And we made this album. I don't know if you know this story, if I'm repeating. No, I don't. So we made this album for Sub Pop. Sub Pop gave us an advance. Kramer was delighted. He needed cash. He was trying to, uh, you know, make get major label deals at the time for himself as a producer and was struggling. And um, looked at it as like, you know, a potential commercial opportunity, really. And so we came in, we gave him our advance, and we, we thought, well, it would be just like more sad hits. We're alone in the studio with Kramer again. 
But everything had changed in the meanwhile in the industry. Uh, there was all this money flying around. Things had changed for Kramer personally. He was going through some really difficult times. And uh, to top it off, he decided to stop smoking pot, which was really like his self-medication um, for, for being a, you know, a decent human being and a, and a great producer. So we really struggled in the studio making this album. He gives us the mix and Naomi and I rejected it. We said to Kramer, you've got to, you've got to work on this more. We're not happy with XX and X. We gave him a list of notes basically. And Kramer threw a tantrum fit at us and said, um, I'm the producer, you know, I know best. And we're like, yeah, we know, but this time we're not happy with everything. We want the following changes. And we were sort of asserting ourselves for the first time in that way with him. And that is not a way you work well with Kramer. So um, he went back begrudgingly, made changes to the record, sent it, sent us the master, the new mix. And we said, it's worse because it was, it was worse. And we're like, Kramer, all right, it's worse. Let's just go back to what you had. Okay. Because it was the way you wanted it. At least this is now neither the way you want it, nor the way we want it. And Kramer said, well, you said you didn't like it. So I erased it. Right. And it was true. Kramer used to tape over master tapes. And he said, I used that dat for something. We were mixing to dat at the time, early digital stuff pre-hard drive. And he said, uh, no, I, I, I erased the dat. You said you didn't like it. You know, just in this like totally petulant way. And we're like, oh my God. And we're, and he wouldn't make any further changes. So we were like stuck with uh, a very bad situation. And that's the mix we gave Sub Pop. We had no choice at that point. And that's our second album. It is the fraught second album. You were mentioning bands fraught second albums yeah. before. Galaxy 500 did not have one. We hit our height, I think, in some ways on our second album. Uh, but uh, Damon and Naomi, we had the difficult second album. And this was the difficulty. We had come to an impasse with Kramer, who is a, such an integral part up to then of how we worked in the studio. And so uh, we gave that record to quite a compromised artistic record, really, for us to sub up. They were lovely about it. They put it out, but, you know, they did no promo. We said we wouldn't tour, and it sank like a stone. And um, that was kind of the end of that. And we thought, well, you know, it's all over again. Um, and uh, anyway, here's the footnote. to the, Well, so in, in our own career, what happened then was like, well, we can't possibly work with Kramer again. So the next time we decided to record, when we had a bunch of new songs we really wanted to make, we called Sub Pop and we negotiated another advance, so again, a one-off. And that time we took the advance and by now digital had come in just to more affordable degree and we bought ourselves our own A-track recording studio and we recorded our own record and we never looked back. So our third album is Damon Naomi is called Playback Singers. It's a totally self-taught, amateur-recorded A-track record, very bedroom pop probably the most bedroom pop record we made in our careers. And that's because we had no producer anymore. And we just decided rather than build a new relationship with someone like that, we were going to teach ourselves to record. So we built our own studio. That was a track. The next sub, the next album we made for sub pop, we bought another eight tracks. That was 16. The next album we made for sub pop, we bought another eight tracks and that's our first 24 track record. And um, we still were recording ourselves. So that's, that's our history. But then to go back to the story to complete it, because it has a great punchline, uh, to the second album, Wondrous World of Damon and Naomi, which 
is named for a Sonny and Cher record. We were still being tongue in cheek and a lot of attitude. Um, we that's Sonny and Cher's second album, so that was like a joke. And um, so many years pass, lots of water under the bridge with Kramer. We've lost touch. Once in a while, get in touch. He gets furious at us later for something. We get furious at him for something. Things cool off. And out of the blue, a couple years ago now, I mean, we're talking decades later, right? We get a phone call from Kramer. Out of nowhere. He's living in Florida. And he says, there's an old friend of mine uh, who lives in New York near the old studio, his original studio, not where we recorded with Galaxy 100, not where we made the Damon and Naomi records with him. And he said, when I left, when I got kicked out of the studio, I threw a lot of things away and she saved them. I think she has some things of yours. If you want to drop by, here's her number next time you're in New York. So next time I'm in New York, I call this number and it's this woman who lives literally around the corner from Kramer's original studio. And I say, you know, Kramer told me you had some stuff. And she said, yeah, I, I have had it here since he left, since he closed that studio. And um, it's in a plastic bag with your name on it, if you'd like it. And she'd saved it all these years, but no one had ever told us. And I was like, great. I went straight over. It was nighttime. I get there. It's like a walk-up apartment. I go upstairs. She's got this plastic like shopping bag with tape around it and hands it to me. And inside are uh, master tapes from uh, our first record and the dat tape that Kramer said he had erased of the original mix of our second album, Wondrous World, Damon and Naomi. This is the one we complained to him about and asked for some small changes. And he had then petulantly said he erased the whole thing. He didn't erase it. He had it in his archive, but he did throw it away. <laughs> and this woman picked it up and she saved, or maybe he gave it to her. To repeat. I have no idea. Anyway, she hands it to me. I'm like, oh my God, I, you know, I see what it is from his handwriting. I know immediately what that is. And I take it home and listen to it. And Kramer was right. It was a better record. You know, it was, it was, it was good the first time around. Um, you know, it wasn't mad, didn't match what Naomi and I wanted to do at the time, but it's, he did a good job. So uh, just maybe two years ago now, Naomi and I put out the bootleg edition of Wondrous World of Damon and Naomi, the original mix. And uh, we did an LP of it. And so as a limited edition, we, and we, we took the Sonny and Cher cover that we were parodying and uh, just Naomi drew over the Sonny and Cher, crossing out their faces and writing our name on it instead of theirs. And that now exists. So we now have that lost uh, version of the second album. And it's better. It's really better. You can find it on our Bandcamp page digitally now yeah. uh, as well. It says Wondrous World Bootleg Edition. But what that is is Kramer's original mix. And uh, so that's that's the story. It's pretty funny, no? It is. And there you go. That is the end of my interview with Damon Krukowski. A big thank you for giving me the time for that. And um, I was just doing some intensive research there, and I found out that... Uh, Galaxy 500 played in Norwich um, on the 11th of December 1989 at the Arts Centre and then they came back in a year later or just under on the 9th of November 1990 and played at the waterfront. So there you go. I just thought you might be interested. Anyway, this is the this is the end, as Jim Morrison once said. Um, thank you ever so much for listening. Like I said, this has been David East of The C86 Show. Um, yes, you can contact me on Twitter, Facebook. Just go to at C86 Show and we'll be there. Make it kind of constructive and groovy. That's always good. And you can find the show 
on iTunes, on Podbean, Mixcloud. Just go to C86 Show or www.c86show.org and you'll find the archives. Anyway, have a great week. I'll leave you with some more music. This is going to be Tugboat and tune in for more interviews from the world of indie pop because I've got lots. Anyway, have a great week.
Drink up everything you have 